0: Welcome back, U.S. history fans. Today we're going to be talking about F.D.R. Franklin Delano Roosevelt. That's Delano, not Delanoir. Everyone always says Delanoir. It's Delano. Anyhow, so we left off talking about the Great Depression, the Dust Bowl, and all that stuff. We talked about the Great, De- uh, the Great Depression starting with the stock market crash, October 29th, 1929, and we talked about it's a little bit under Hoover's presidency of trying to get us out of the gutter, but it just wasn't happening. So, it comes down to the man, FDR, who was not exactly coy about uh, his role in things. He said, look, I'm either going to be the last president or the best president, because he figured if he didn't succeed, America was doomed. But let's talk about this guy, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, born in New York on January 30th, 1882, the son of James Roosevelt and Sarah Delano Roosevelt. Um, yeah, the guy didn't exactly grow up in, uh, you know, uh, rags to riches kind of thing. Uh, his parents had private tutors for him basically most of his life throughout all, most of his education, um, uh, you know, trips to the seaside and just d- didn't, ex- he had, he, he grew up well. Let's put it that way. Um, so he decided that, uh, as his life progressed, he wanted to follow in the example of his fifth cousin, President Theodore Roosevelt. However, Franklin Delano Roosevelt entered public service through politics as a Democrat, not as a Republican or a bull moose, for that matter. Anyhow, um, so real first big kind of politics thing, he won election to the New York Senate in 1910. Prior to that, in 1905, he got married to a cousin, a distant cousin, mind you, but Anna Eleanor Roosevelt, who was the niece of President Theodore Roosevelt. Uh, they had six children, five of whom survived, survived infancy because uh, infant mortality was a little, little higher back than it is today. And, uh, following his 1910 election to the State Senate, he was re-elected to the State Senate in 1912. He supported Woodrow Wilson's candidacy as um, at the Democratic National Convention. As a reward for his support, Wilson appointed him to Assistant Secretary of of the Navy in 1913, which he held until 1920. And I don't quite understand that assistant secretary. So it's like assistant to the regional manager. That was a little bit of an office reference. But anyhow, so uh till nineteen twenty. But while vacationing at Cambello Island in New Brunswick in the summer of nineteen twenty-one, Roosevelt contracted poliomyelitis. That did not delight us. Haha. <laughs> Okay, yeah, I'm sorry. Um, Okay, I'm not probably pronouncing that right, but let's just call it polio instead. So, uh, or infantile paralysis, sometimes known as, but he had polio. And despite courageous efforts to overcome his crippling illness, he never regained the use of his legs. All right. Uh, In time, he he did. I mean, he tried it. Like I said, tried everything, and he did establish a foundation at the warm at Warm Springs, Georgia, to help out other polio victims, and basically um, inspired people. And he directed the March of Dimes program, which eventually did uh, fund and create an effective vaccine. Uh, It was too little, too late for him, but other people benefited from all this. But FDR basically stayed. Sadly, uh, without use of his legs for the rest of his life, at least without use the way we think of use here. You'll see. Um, So, like I said, at this time, Roosevelt was really worried about looking weak in the eyes of the public. So he decided to convince, uh, I mean, basically the whole nation that he was actually getting better. Now, I know he wasn't president yet, but I mean, even when he was president, he wanted to convince people that he could walk. So... He thought that if he wanted to run for public office again, he had to convince people that he was able-bodied. He figured that Americans would not vote for someone who was uh, some type of disability. So he would fit his hips and legs with iron braces. He taught himself to walk short distances by swiveling his hips and torso and supporting himself with a cane. Um, I kind of liken it to like a Frankenstein walk almost of like this kind of straight-legged walk. Uh, If he was in private use, he would use a wheelchair, uh, but he never wanted to be seen in public with it. Uh, When he eventually did become president, he had a special chair in the Oval Office behind his desk. And the desk was set up so he really couldn't see his chair. And his chair looked like a regular chair, but it had some some wheels on it so he could move around. And when someone would come in, he would put his left arm, for the sake of argument, on the desk, push his whole body up by his left arm, shake someone's hand when they came in, so it kind of looked like he was standing up to greet someone. And if he was in public, he would always be seen standing upright, usually supported on one side by an aide or one of his sons. So it just looked like he was just like, oh, yes, really chummy with his, you know, his son or an aide or someone. And, um, yeah, so that was just kind of um, some of the great lengths that he went to to convince people that he was still able-bodied and able to move and walk and so forth. All right, in 1928, Roosevelt was elected governor of New York, so we're jumping ahead a couple years here. Uh, his activist approach and personal charm, we're going to talk about that charm here in a little bit, helped uh, helped him to kind of pave the way and eventually defeat Hoover in November of 1932 by 7 million votes. And he becomes our new president, uh, inaugurated in 1933 um and some of his slogans for running for president is i propose a new deal or i pledge you i pledge myself to a new deal for the american people and roosevelt did win 57 percent of the vote and carried all but six states so people really weren't too fan of that hoover kind of hooverville type guy so eleanor roosevelt despite having a happy start of the marriage um and she just you know she wanted to be a loving and loved wife uh... their marriage sadly almost fell apart over franklin delano roosevelt's affair with her social secretary lucy mercer and when eleanor learned of this affair from mercer's letter that he that she found dating back to nineteen eighteen okay this was in a suitcase that franklin had keep that date nineteen eighteen in your head because that's gonna like just to give you an idea of the scale of this Um. So, anyhow, Eleanor told Roosevelt, or Franklin, sorry, uh, that, look, we will get a divorce if you do not end this affair. Well, Franklin agreed never to see Mercer again. Um, He kept seeing her. Um, So, she began, this Mercer began visiting him in the 30s and was actually with Franklin at Warm Springs, Georgia, when he passed away in 1945. So, they started seeing each other, you know in 1918, and at his deathbed, it wasn't his wife that was by his side, it was his mistress. Now, so, even though this marriage did survive, Eleanor and Franklin stayed together, Um, Eleanor just came out of it a very different woman, coming to a realization that she could achieve fulfillment only through her own influence, not through the happy marriage anymore, sadly. And through her husband's paralysis, uh, she became kind of the, like, his legs, so to speak, and that's that's a terrible pun. Um, I need to find a different way to say that. She she became a um, a moving force in the political uh, machine that was the the Roosevelts, and she really went out there and started to take an active role in politics. And you know she she really kind of pushed uh, women's rights forwards and just you know the role of the first lady and so forth. And you know you got to remember during this time. Uh, divorce was not very common, so that threat of divorce um, was a really big deal. Because if they had gotten divorced, there's no way that anyone in politics, uh, you know, could have survived that, at least for their political thing. No one would have voted for them, and you know, it wasn't very common. You know, sadly today, uh, divorce is, is a lot more common. I, th- I think we're over 50% of marriages under divorce today. Uh, back then, it was not very common, so that was a pretty big threat, and for FDR to you know continue on up until his his death with his affair um yeah so anyhow um so eleanor you know this new political machine that is eleanor roosevelt would visit with many different groups and unions to help kind of settle disputes and just to kind of listen to the woes and hardships of the american people she was able to get out to places that fdr just you know physically could not get out to and she would leave little notes in a box on FDR's desk um, of things that needed to be done. And so that was, you know, sadly kind of a way that they communicated almost. And many young women identified with Eleanor Roosevelt and felt that, you know, she was someone they could look to. And they would write letters to her and uh, asking for food, blankets, and help, and so on. And she would respond any way that she, you know, could, basically. Uh, there's a book, I think it's called Letters to Eleanor, uh, and it has a whole bunch of those in it. And uh, just to give you a little fun fact here, um, as First Lady, Eleanor Roosevelt allowed only female journalists at her press conferences ensuring that newspapers would have to hire women. So I thought that was kind of neat. So anyhow, uh, just a little back here to FDR becoming president. Um, You know, as I mentioned earlier, he won, and his inauguration was on March 4th. Now, modern day, we inaugurate presidents on, we inaugurate them on January 20th. And this changed because of the Twentieth Amendment, nicknamed the Lame Duck Amendment. And I'll get into what a lame duck is here in a second. So just a little recap, because I went over this a little earlier in some past podcasts. The 18th Amendment made prohibition happen. The 19th Amendment gave women the right to vote. The 20th now is the lame duck amendment, which changed the inauguration date from uh, March to January March 4th and January 20th. And the 21st got rid of prohibition. So just give you a little thing here. So this lame duck amendment or lame duck is a leader whose authority is weakened because he or she is about to leave office so what it comes down to is Hoover for example uh, he did not win reelection um in November but he was still the president until March 4th Well, during that time do you think anyone really cares what Hoover has to say leading up to FDR becoming president No. So, they're like, look, this guy, he's a lame duck. He's just sitting there. He's not doing anything. No one wants to listen to a word he has to say. So they're like, all right, let's move this up a little bit so we can get a new president there. And also, you got to remember, technology has changed so much. That time period of when a president is elected versus inaugurated, they're usually going around the country and organizing their cabinet and figuring out who's going to be in charge of different areas of the government under their presidency. Well, with technology changing, you know, airplanes and trains and, you know, telephones and all those things, and now modern day internet and everything, it's so much easier to get a hold of people that you don't need to take all that time anymore. So, anyhow, FDR is in charge and he gets this nation that is absolutely in ruins. The economy is just messed up. So he wants to give America a sense of hope. He wants to build public confidence in the future. And he was hoping to calm panic and create a support for all of his plans and ideas. And in FDR's first inaugural address on March 4th, 1933, he told Americans the famous quote, The only thing we have to fear is fear itself. And the first Sunday after taking office, Roosevelt spoke to the nation over the radio And this was the first of what became very regular fireside chats. And we'd mentioned earlier that he was charming and, you know, just really easygoing and, like, just people identified with him. Well, these fireside chats were just a huge bump for him on these things. You know, he could get on the radio and he would sit by the fireside of the White House and you could hear the fire crackling in the background and his easy manner and confidence helped to renew people's hope for the future. I mean, this was a big event. People would go over to other people's houses who had radios just to listen to the president talk. I mean, modern day, I feel like if the president comes on TV, we change the channel. We're like, oh, he's interrupting, you know, um, what's going on? So um, I, I say, you know, he, he's interrupting like, you know, Roosevelt or um, at the time of recording this, um, you know, President Obama. Um So I'm dating myself by saying I'm recording this in 2016. I hope that doesn't come back to haunt me. Um, Anyhow, so um, he would take moments during these speeches and take a drink of water. And this was a just it was very personal at the time that like, oh, my gosh, he's inviting us into the White House. You know, this is a real person who gets parched and needs water. Sorry, I had to take a break there. I needed a drink of water. I am a real person. Don't know if you know that. Um, but, you yeah, know, he would address these people. It was very personal. And for a lot of times, it was the first time they had kind of a one-on-one connection with the president. And now that he is president, um, one of his campaign things that he is focusing on or promising the people is bold, persistent experimentation. Now, let's think about that for a minute. Bold, persistent experimentation. Well, what are you going to do? Oh, it's going to be bold. Oh, how often are you do it? Oh, all the time. What's it going to be exactly? It's an experiment. All right, no one really knew what the heck was going on. He's just like, we're just going to throw a whole bunch of stuff to the wall and see what sticks. Uh, reporter Arthur Crock put it best, I think. Washington welcomes the New Deal, even though it is not sure what the New Deal is going to be. So... Um, yeah, think back to President Obama, one of his big uh, campaign slogans was change, like what's it gonna be? Oh, it's gonna be different. What exactly is it gonna be? Oh, it's gonna be a change, we don't really know kind of thing, I mean initially I guess. So that term New Deal that he is promising the American people, it eventually came to refer to the relief, recovery and reform programs that FDR's administration were aiming at using to combat the Great Depression. And during his first 100 days in office, that time between March and June of 1933, uh, known as the first 100 days, he pushed program after program after program through Congress, all these efforts to try to make the, the country better kind of thing. And... One of the very first programs or things that he passed was on March 5th, the one day after being inaugurated, he closed all the banks for four days. So remember, these are banks that people that are losing money, losing people's savings or closing down, bank runs and all those things are going on. And while they're closed for four days, he passed the Emergency Banking Act. This was on March 9th. And it authorized the government to inspect the financial health of all banks. And so the idea was that it would convince people, like, look, you can trust the banks. The government inspected them and said this is a good bank or a bad bank. So on March 15th, two-thirds of all the banks had reopened. And so you know, they closed down some of the bad ones is what it comes down to. And so people had faith in the banks again. And people put money into their banks um, and they actually put more money in than they took out for the first time in a very long time since the stock market crash. And this caused, this caused the economy to, to stir and grow for the first time in a long time. Now, speaking of another banking act, one that um, I'm kind of a, a fan of, I guess you could say. Uh, this is something we got rid of um, modern day. Like, I think it was in 1999 we got rid of this. Um, So it was around for a long time. I still like it. I wish we would bring it back. That's just a personal opinion on that one, so just a reminder, that's just my personal views. But anyhow, the Glass-Steagall Banking Act of 1933, it made banks choose between being a bank for civilians or being a bank for like commercial banking businesses. And part of this Glass-Steagall Bank, they also established the FDIC, Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, to insure bank deposits and make sure that the banks cannot lose your money. And this is insured up to five thousand dollars. Modern day, it's up to two hundred and fifty thousand dollars. So if a bank goes goes under, the the government will make sure that you do not lose money. You know, up to five thousand dollars. After that, sorry, historically, modern day two hundred fifty. And the reason I like that is I think that banks should be one or the other. I don't think that they should do both when their interests are aligning with civilians and businesses. I don't know if banks always do the the right things. Um, at least from my perspective historically. So just giving you my little bias on that one. Um, so Federal Securities Act, another act. Um, I Just a heads up, the second half of this podcast is going to have so many different acts and administrations and just all kinds of little things that are being passed. So if you think you're going to get overwhelmed with these, you probably will. Sorry. All right, but (laughs) now, that's not very reassuring. Let's talk about the Federal Securities Act. This is May of 1933. It required businesses to disclose information about their finances if they were going to offer stock shares. So bottom line, if you're going to sell stocks and you're going to convince people to invest in your company, you need to be transparent. You need to tell us what's going on with your company so we don't make bad decisions, give you a ton of money, and then you go bankrupt, and then all of a sudden, we lose all of our money too. And... Uh, kind of going hand in hand with the Federal Securities Act was the Securities and Exchange Commission, the SEC. And they basically help to regulate the stock market. They are a watchdog on the stock exchange and making sure that everything is going, you know, above board and no one's kind of, you know, messing with the stock market, manipulating things or saying one thing but doing something different. Now, um... During, once again, another thing that FDR... I mean, all this stuff I'm going over, FDR is just trying this bold, persistent experimentation. He's trying all these new things to try to get the country back on track. And he wanted to fight deflation. If you remember from our last unit deflation is when there is not enough money in circulation. So he thinks, look, if more, people have more money, they're more apt to spend it. If they spend their money, the, the economy will stir and grow and will come out of this, you know, this depression. Well, the problem is... We have this deflation because there's not enough money. Well, it seems simple. Print more money. But the problem is we have this thing called the gold standard. So FDR decides decides to take us off the gold standard. Now, the gold standard basically meant that every U.S. dollar had to be backed up by gold. So if you wanted to print more money, you had to find more gold. And if you wanted to take your money and give it to the government, they had to give you a certain amount of gold in exchange for that. So if you didn't have enough gold, you couldn't print more dollars. So FDR's like, well, I need to print more money. So we need to get rid of this gold standard thing so we can print more money. So that was one of the things he did to help us out. All right. Um, We're going to pause there. I'm at the 20-minute mark. So... I'm going to pick up with tons and tons of more acts and so forth. I apologize in advance. So we'll pick up with some relief and some creating jobs in the CCC, the NRA, not the National Rifle Association, and more. So stay tuned and listen to part two. Talk to you soon.